Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? This is the word of the Lord. The word translated whirlwind here is used only 19 times in all of the Hebrew Scriptures. Out of hundreds and hundreds of pages, only 19 times this word is used. Scholars say that in Israel, one does not have kind of tornadoes we have here, those rare but devastating Category 4, Category 5 tornadoes, that one has what Western Oklahomans call dust devils. The dust devils, stirred up in the hottest part of summer. Uh, little mini tornadoes, if you would, but, but not nearly so powerful and devastating as some that we know. Others say, well, this word can mean something a little bit more than that. It can be somehow combined with a very violent thunderstorm. In all the prophetic books, this word is used 11 times. In the book of Psalms, 150 of them, it's used only once. In the book of Proverbs, only once. It's used twice to describe events in Elijah's life. The last one being when Elijah walked out ahead of Elisha and a dust devil came and as the winds and sand swirled around Elijah, he was simply transitioned up to God's heaven and no one ever saw him again. In the book of Job, we have this word used four times. Four times out of the whirlwind, out of the dust devil, God spoke. Now, God's uh, taken his good time here. If you'd been reading Job uh, along with me these four weeks, you would know that we're already 38 chapters into the book by this time before God finally speaks to Job. God spoke in the very beginning, but it wasn't to Job. It was in some sort of heavenly council where God is speaking, but has been silent ever since that time. The bulk of the material up to this point has been dialogue between Job and his friends. We often speak of the patience of Job, and Job wasn't patient. And we speak of his friends as being his comforters, and they didn't comfort Job. They didn't comfort him. When they arrived, they said, Job, we've known you were a good man all these years because you were blessed with ten children and all these hundreds and hundreds of animals. But now that the animals have been taken away and your children all are dead, we know you must have done something wrong. Fess up. What was it? And for all these chapters leading up to 38, we've had one of the friends in a lengthy discourse and then Job responds and then friend number two speaks and Job responds and friend number three speaks and Job responds and then they start over again with friend number one. That's what we've been hearing all these chapters. And more than any other message from Job, this one, I want to call God out. I want Him to meet me in a court of law. I want to present my case that what's happened to me is not fair. It is undeserved. I have not committed any sin. 
worthy of all this misfortune that's been visited upon me. I have not. I have not. Today God speaks. Out of the whirlwind God speaks. Now Dr. Norman Hobble, who's written one of the very best commentaries on the book of Job, says, if you read carefully here, you discover that God's argument against Job centers in cosmology, meteorology, and zoology. That God doesn't really address the issue that Job once addressed. God decides to answer Job in these three big areas. He first tells him, gird your loins. Now, he says this again in the middle of his speech, which goes on for four chapters. Twice he tells Job, gird your loins. And we know that they wore loose-fitting, long outer garments, belted, and that when one was either going to fight or run, you rolled up this robe and tucked it into the belt so you could either fight or run. So, fight or flight. That's the reaction here. You're going to fight? You're going to run, Job. You get ready for one or the other because I'm about to give you my answer. And here we have this cosmology, meteorology, zoology. The cosmology. It comes from a word cosmos, of course, which has to do with world. When we speak of a cosmopolitan uh, place, we're talking about a city, polis, that is of the world. A city that is far beyond its own bounds. It is a city known and influencing other parts of the world. So New York City would be considered cosmopolitan. London and Paris and Berlin and Rome and so on. Cosmopolitan. Cities affecting the whole world. So cosmology has to do with the world. But here the language, so long ago, reflects the understanding of the world that everybody else seemed to have. That the earth was flat. It had water all around it. If you dug down far enough, you would eventually come to water. If you went far enough north, south, east, and west, you would come to water. There must be water overhead because it's blue and it leaks through on people from time to time. So where were you, Job, when I laid out the foundations of the earth? When I stretched the line, those who are carpenters or do carpentry work know how one stretches the line. You pop it with a little bit of chalk on it and you can now see uh, how straight the line who set the foundations down into this mucky muck down below who saw to its origins but in this cosmology one also looks above and this ancient poet is fully aware of the constellations people who spent great amounts of time out of doors living in tents most of them for centuries certainly were aware of the Patterns in the stars. Uh, ancient folk tried to figure out what kept stars in particular patterns. So this poet asked, Can you unchain the Pleiades? Can you throw a rope around Orion? Can you separate the stars of Maserot? Can you control the stars of Ursa Major? Oh. Same constellations we know today asking Job these big questions about, did you lay out this earth where everybody lives that we know about? Did you lay out the stars in the heavens? Then he turns to meteorology. He asks, do you know where the vaults of snow are kept? Do you know where hailstones are kept? Do you know where water is changed into pieces of ice as hard as stone? 
Do you control the thunderstorms? Do you have control over the lightning? And then God moves to zoology. People were just learning how to domesticate animals, learning how to breed them so that you had more little calves coming along, you had more little lambs coming along. But this poet says that God wants to know, but what about all the wild animals out there? Do you know their mating habits? Do you know how long it takes for a little one to be born? And he mentions the mountain goats, the ibex. He mentions the wild donkey, the onager. He mentions the ostriches, which were birds thought of as living in desolate, ruined places when the temple and the palace and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed by the Babylonians. They said uh, only the wild jackass and the ostrich would come there because it was so desolate. So animal after animal is mentioned. Finally, he gets to the two big ones. He mentions behemoth. Behemoth was some huge animal they conceived of that patrolled the land masses. Scholars say if you read carefully, you discover that this poet says he was a herbivore, uh, a plant-eating animal, not a carnivore, and that probably the author has in mind something like a huge hippopotamus. He asks, can you control this huge, huge behemoth? And then they imagine there was some great power in the seas, this water that was over them and around them and beneath them. It was a dragon-like figure called Leviathan. And this poet asked Job, God said, can you put a fish hook in Leviathan? Can you put a gaff in Leviathan? Can you rule this huge monster of the deep? knowing that in the book of Psalms, there is one psalm that says, Leviathan is little more than a rubber duck in God's bathtub, sort of. That's the language that's being used here. God can control Behemoth, and God can control Leviathan, and God knows the mating habits and the migration patterns of all the animals and the birds of the earth. What about you, Job? Do you know all these things? Gird yourself and fess up. Do you or not? Notice what Job does. This is number two. He covers his mouth. He covers his mouth. He has said enough. He has nothing to say. He has been left speechless. Now notice, he does not confess what his friends want him to confess. He does not say... I have committed some grievous sin and I'll tell you what it was. He does not confess that he has sinned in any way that merits all of this devastation that's come into his life. Loss of every property that he had, every animal. Loss of all of his children. Loss of his own health. He does not say, I have sinned against God. I am wrong. I deserve what's happened to me but he does stand once more in awe of God who was there at the very beginning and who does know all of these things. Well, today we speak a different language when we look at the heavens, but let me help you a little bit put this in perspective. The late Dr. Carl Sagan was one of my favorites. I really enjoyed his program on PBS called Cosmos. 
where he talked about billions and billions of galaxies and billions and billions of stars. You remember? Johnny Carson enjoyed him, had him often on The Tonight Show uh, when Dr. Sagan was head of the astronomy department at Cornell University for all those many years. Uh, One of the books that he wrote that I liked very much was called The Dragons of Eden in which he talks about how he believes the, the brain of humans developed that deep within our present brains we still have vestiges of the old reptile within us. He says that every... Uh, People on the planet who had stories about how things came into being have the demon, uh, the evil one, being some form of old reptile. It was a snake in the garden. It was a dragon-like figure in the great oceans because this old reptile within us is something that we're always trying to keep under control. But as the brain continued to develop and we became mammals, Uh, we became a very different being, one that could project itself outside itself, one that was capable of judging itself. Uh, Why do I like bananas? Why do I not like rutabagas or Brussels sprouts or something else? Um, Our ability to project ourselves into the future also tends to make us anxious about that future. Well, in this book, Dr. Carl Sagan said, Let me sort of put things in perspective for you. Let's imagine that the time from the Big Bang, which sent things careening off into space until our own day, would be one 365-day year. Okay? Let all of that great expanse of time, ranging somewhere between 14 and 18 billion years, be represented with one 365-day year. If that be the case, then the Big Bang would have occurred, of course, right at the beginning of January 1. Now, our Milky Way is the galaxy our sun, our star, is a part of. Milky Way galaxy. In fact, the word galaxy itself comes from a word that means milk. Even the ancients thought this looked sort of milky. There were so many stars in this galaxy. We know today that it's a rather mediocre galaxy among billions of others. But it's the one of which we are a part. It did not begin to form until May 1. Our solar system, our star, with nine planets revolving around it, or eight if you want to toss out that ninth one, with our planets moving around it, did not begin until September 9. The Earth began to form, to take its shape, about September 14. The first life that we can trace in any form whatsoever, those little one-celled animal life on this planet came September 25. But the oldest fossils that we have in any great museum of the world, October 9. We think of dinosaurs as having been here a long, long time ago. They didn't appear until Christmas Eve, December 24. There were no flowers on our planet until December 28. But let's look at December 31st. First humans, first humans, 10.30 p.m. on December 31. Domestication of fire. 
human beings being able to make a fire and to keep it going so that they could use it to cook food, etc. 11.46 p.m. Uh, Gail and I spent one of our vacations three years ago uh, in France. And we took trains all the way as far as we could go to get near Lascaux to go into the caves where the oldest known paintings of humans are to be found. You've seen them in National Geographic and on OETA and so on. You've seen representations of those cave paintings. They are truly, truly amazing. Well, those weren't painted on the wall until 11.59 p.m. December 31. And Jesus of Nazareth was born four seconds before midnight. And I cover my mouth. I cover my mouth because you and I are so late to the party. The last 2,000 years are represented by four seconds on that kind of calendar. Who are we to question the Almighty who created the heavens and the earth? All right, number three. Number three, our best scholars, Dr. Carol Newsom, Dr. Norman Hobble, Dr. Marvin Pope, and others say, note carefully that when God chooses to speak, the poet very clearly says, the Lord said to Job. Now, I've told you that in good translations, like the ones we use here at Boston Avenue, the translators are very consistent when they write the word God in English, G-O-D, they're translating some form of the word El. The oldest name the Jews had for God. El, Eloah, Elohim, etc. There are several variations, but they all come from the same stem of El. Now, when you read the book of Job, the prose, sort of preamble, God is called that name at the burning bush. Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am. In the very last part of the 42nd chapter, we'll take a look at that next Sunday, prose again, he is called Eye, Asher, Eye. But in all the rest of the book, all of the poetry, God is called El, or Eloah, or Elohim, except this portion right here. Now, what does that mean? If one knows the history of Israel, one knows that the Israelites had a name very similar to the name others in the Middle East use for God. il el al I've been through this with you many times before. Very similar name for God until Moses experienced God in the form of a burning bush. God speaking to Moses' deepest heart and sending him back to Egypt to face down Pharaoh and help set God's people free. God approached Moses in the most nearly personified way ever before and certainly better than ever again until Mary's child Jesus. That word means everything in Judaism. The name, it is so special. They do not speak it at Temple Israel. They do not speak it at Congregation B'nai Emunah. Because to speak it too much would somehow 
separate it from its great significance that the El of creation, who had somehow thrust all these billions of stars into the heavens, and who alone could control the Pleiades and Orion and Maserot and Ursa Major, that one became so close and so real to Moses at the burning bush, so real to the people of Israel as He freed them, so real to Israel as He delivered to them through the hands of Moses the Ten Commandments. So God becomes personal again for Job as He was personal, if you will, coming to one person, Moses, now to one person, Job. Harry Emerson Fosdick, one of the greatest preachers America ever produced. When I went to join the staff with Dr. Charles Allen at First Methodist Church in Houston, he talked with me about uh, what he envisioned in my being the Sunday night preacher. People were moving farther and farther from the downtown of Houston at that point. It's having a lot of infilling now, but, but back then people were moving farther and farther away as they have been for some years here in Tulsa. Uh, getting farther and farther from the downtown areas. And when I went to be Sunday night preacher with Dr. Allen, they were running fewer than a hundred on Sunday nights. Uh, I had a good friend I had sent down to check it out for me a couple of Sunday nights, uh, and they had 93 one Sunday night, 91 another. So I knew what, what lay ahead for me, that I was supposed to preach to, to these people and try to get them to come back downtown. Dr. Charles Allen kept saying, to me, you must be the same Muzan Biggs every Sunday night. Okay. Uh, you must be consistent. Uh, they must know that if they drive 15 miles back downtown on a Sunday night, that they're going to hear the same Muzan Biggs they heard the Sunday night before. And you have to find your audience. Not everybody in Houston's going to come hear you preach. Feed the ones whom you can feed. And then he told me that when he was a very young preacher, the preacher he admired more than any other was Harry Emerson Fosdick. He said this was long before television, but Dr. Fosdick was on radio. He said, when I was a boy growing up, I would hear Harry Emerson Fosdick preach on the radio. And when I got big enough to save a little bit of money from very menial chores that I could do, I bought Dr. Fosdick's books. I read every book he had ever written. And finally, he said, when I was graduated from seminary, I saved enough money to buy a railroad ticket from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way to New York City to hear Harry Emerson Fosdick preach. I wanted to be Harry Emerson Fosdick. And I discovered I couldn't. I just couldn't be Harry Emerson Fosdick. His mind worked in ways that mine just didn't work, wouldn't work, I was a boy who had grown up in Georgia and I had to be who I was. I just couldn't be Harry Emerson Fosdick. Well, recently in our United Methodist Quarter, there was an article about Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was born in 1878. At the time this church, our church building here, was being built, Harry Emerson Fosdick was leading his congregation in New York City to build what is now the famed Riverside Church. They were under construction at exactly the same time we were here. Uh, we got through before they did. Easter Sunday, 1929, this congregation marched down Boston Avenue and into their new building for Easter Sunday. 
It was the fall of the next year, 1930, when the Riverside congregation moved into their new building for the very first time. You remember what was happening? October 1929, the stock market crashed. Now the Rockefellers had put a lot of money into Riverside Church, but not all the money. The other people still needed to be there and contributing. Harry Emerson Fosdick wrote a poem that was sung that day when the people moved into the church the first time. And we have it, God of grace and God of glory. On thy people pour thy power. And every verse that he wrote ends, Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour. And then another great verse ending, Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour. Job, know how personal Almighty God will be for you. Know, Boston Avenueers, how personal God Almighty will be for you. Number four, last. You and I do have a clearer picture still, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. God did send the long-awaited Messiah so that we could see Him. We could know Him. That we could see the face of God. We could know the heart of God. That He is the same One who created the heavens and the earth. He is the same One who appeared to Moses and spoke to him out of a burning bush. The same One who liberated His people and led them through the waters of the sea and gave them the Ten Commandments. But we believe He had never been nor will ever be again as real as He was in the person of Jesus Christ until our Lord shall come again. The Lord Jesus Christ who helps us know that God is the one of the broken heart who grieves over every misfortune Before Jesus came, the Jews had finally decided that in this lifetime, there are so many things that simply are not fair. That there are so many hurts and pains that are undeserved. That there must be a time and a place where God finally makes all things right. And the New Testament declares to you and me, It happened. It happened. And our Lord Jesus, having been raised from the dead by the power of God, is the first fruit of all who sleep. That the trumpet shall sound, and we too shall be raised and given a body incorruptible in the eternity of God. Pablo Diaz has written that He was always skeptical about these conversion stories that come out of our prisons. He always suspected, he said, that people get converted once they've been sent to prison so they would curry special favor or early release. But there were people in his state who kept saying, no, no, there are lives that are being genuinely changed who are experiencing a real conversion in our state penitentiary. Still, he and friends of his at their church were unconvinced and they all decided if we can see that these converted prisoners have in fact moved from being a person who's all about self 
to being persons who are now about others, then genuine conversion has occurred. If they have seen that God does offer the gift of life, life abundant, life everlasting, but insists that we move self out of center and let God be center and let the other be the center, then we've understood what Jesus Christ came to show us. The plan was that there were many children in that state who did not have sufficient warm clothing with winter coming on and that they would offer to these converted prisoners the opportunity to knit sweaters for deserving children whom they didn't even know. Now this all had to be worked out with the warden and the guards. If you're going to turn knitting needles loose in a prison, they have to be carefully accounted for who has a pair and they have to be returned and checked out and returned and checked out and returned. But Pablo and his friends said they were invited to the prison. It was a cold, miserable day in November, just a few weeks before Christmas. And as they made their way up the hill from the parking lot to the prison, which sat right atop the hill, it was unbelievably cold, the wind whipping across the top of the hill. They were taken through gate after gate after gate and finally could see the chapel in the middle of this prison yard. And they could see the prisoners coming to the chapel in their faded blue overalls that are the, are the wear in that particular prison. And he said, as the last of them entered the chapel, we went in behind them. And when we walked in, the chapel was filled with inmates. And down at the altar, stacked on either side, more than a hundred beautiful sweaters, red and blue and yellow and green and purple. And the prisoners standing to sing a hymn. We knew that more than a hundred youngsters would be warmer that winter but already more than a hundred hearts had been warmed.